everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Language Lounge. My name is Michelle Ola, and today I have Matt Koss with me to talk about novice language learners um, and with a special twist, right, Matt? That's right. Awesome. We're going to talk about they are, I love the title of the presentation that kind of prompted this discussion, which was, I don't know, you'll correct me exactly, but it's basically that, you know, novice language language doesn't mean novice brains, right? Or novice. Yeah. And I think that is so, so important. I think it's something as I was a Spanish one teacher forever, um, Mm -hmm. that is you struggle, right? It's hard to, to do this. So I, I just appreciate you being here today to talk a little bit about this, share some tips and ideas. Uh, but before we start, why don't you just kind of introduce yourself? Tell us a little about about where you are, your language teaching and learning journey would be great. I'd love to hear more. Sure. All right. Yeah. Thank you very much for for the invitation for having me. I'm, I'm really happy to be here talking about, you know, world language stuff is what I do even in my free time. So, you know, to be able <laughs> right? to talk about it with enthusiastic friends is, is always a fun thing. Um, yeah, sure. So my name is Matt. Um, I'm originally from Charlotte, North Carolina, where I was born and raised uh, until I was 18. Um, I did my undergraduate degree at UNC Chapel Hill, and I double majored mm. in Hispanic linguistics and in uh, Asian studies, which is just really Chinese. Um, I have a master's degree in second language acquisition from the University of Maryland and spent four years, four and a half years, um, two during my master's and two after working at the National Foreign Language Center, which is also at the University of Maryland. So for those in the audience familiar with StarTalk, for example, that's a that's a program and a project that I worked really closely with for a long time. Um, and then I am now a PhD student at Michigan State University in the second language studies program, which is sort of another way of saying second language acquisition. Um, and then let's see, language teaching. So the long and short of it is I had my first job sort of as a language teacher when I was actually only 16 years old. I was a high school student um, and my school had a teacher go out on medical leave and they couldn't find a sub or a member of the staff to cover one section of her class. So I was a junior in high school and uh, one day I got approached and they asked me if I felt comfortable teaching a Spanish 2, an IB Spanish 2 class. And uh, of course, you know, 16-year-old me, who's a proficient <laughs> Spanish speaker, was like, how sure. hard can it be to teach a language? <laughs> no problem. Like, yeah, I can do that. Um, I was smart, fantastic. though. I got I negotiated well for myself. So they had an adult in the room at all times, like a sub, often who didn't speak Spanish, though. And uh, I actually managed to negotiate my way out of not only my first period class, so I taught Spanish every day on a block schedule for one semester, but I got myself out of my second period class too. So I got a planning period. That's fantastic. Pretty cool. Um, looking back as, you know, at 16 to have figured that out, I think, you know, I was like, wow, I, I, I paid attention That's to my crazy. teachers at least, I think. Um, but that gave me a sort of redirected my path one. I thought I was going to be like a business international consulting kind of translator. I don't know. I don't know what I was planning to do, but it wasn't teaching. And, uh, then it sort of That's great. humbled me profoundly in high school to realize, you know, just how hard it was. You know, I was like, I know Spanish and I know how I learned it. And I'm watching how these students are or are not learning it. And I'm like frustrated, but also super excited and, and uh, really trying to just wrap my mind around, you know, how do I do this in a way that it works? You know, what works? Um, so 16, you know, redirected life trajectory and sort of decided I want to teach languages. Um, So in college, I taught undergraduate um, Spanish classes. I also taught for two years at the medical school at UNC Chapel Hill. So I taught very advanced learners who were, you know, soon to be doctors. Um, So we did quite a bit of sort of situational, really intricate, you know, getting to, you know, high level interpersonal communication kinds of things. Um, and then after college, I spent a little over a year teaching at a language school that I had previously been involved with for many years, um, where I was teaching adults. So people all the way from like, you know, college age students up to retirees. And then I went and did my master's and had some time teaching. Um, I taught for almost an entire school year in an elementary Chinese immersion program in Washington, D.C., 
Um, I taught, I started teaching Chinese at Georgetown University. So I taught at Georgetown for two years and I've been at George Washington University now for three years teaching Chinese. So I have this, did Spanish teaching for a while and I've been away from it for a while, which I, you know, I really miss it, um, but have been teaching Chinese for quite a few years. I left out the summer intensive language <laughs> learning with middle and high schoolers that I did for many years too. But uh, so kind of That's small true. amounts of time, you know, I'm pretty young, I suppose. Um, but, you know, I've sort of gotten to dabble with language learners at kind of every age and stage, which is pretty cool. That's amazing. So it would have been a lot quicker if I would have just asked you, what haven't you done, right? What haven't, <laughs> what, what haven't you taught? No, that's amazing. Uh, though, but I love that, you know, that, that experience with all those different, like you said, from adults and professionals and elementary and all of that, I, I find just, I know I've worked, and again, not nearly as extensive in different areas as that, but the more you add different layers and different people mm-hmm. into that it, it all it's the same but it's not right i mean exactly it's very it's there's commonalities but then there's things that are so different and then you can transfer those amazing things from one context and go oh let's see what it looks like in a different way um, for a different audience totally and what's really interesting and i'm sure we'll get into this with today's topic um, and I'm sure I will mention this dear friend and colleague more than once today, but something uh, a dear friend of mine who's also a Spanish teacher currently in a middle school in Charlotte, Rose Rhodes, um, one of the things she and I talk about all the time is how, you know, in so many ways, elementary school language teachers really have it figured out. You know, they, in terms of pace, in terms of having to make themselves comprehensible, in terms of not being able to sort of pretend to rely on lots of yeah. sort of grammar driven you know, sort of syllabus, if you will, for a course, um, you know, teaching language, but also teaching content, like really differentiation, I, I wish, addressing special needs. Yeah. Oh, it's so I wish true. Element, I wish everybody got to teach, not had to perhaps, yeah. but got to teach, or at least got to watch our elementary school world language colleagues, because I think they have it figured out in a way that benefited me, you know, before and after that with people as old as retirees. You know? Yeah, I, I agree 100%. When I taught at the secondary level, and then I worked in a district office, and I mostly mm-hmm. worked at, originally with secondary. And then we mm-hmm. had the the great opportunity to have an elementary program come into place. And long story mm-hmm. short, I was their coach and administrator, and I got to be in elementary world language, Chinese, French, German, Spanish classrooms wow. every day. And I learned more about language teaching and good, what good instruction looks like and engagement and all of those things by working with those teachers. And so it's funny, even now I'm the the president of NEL, the National Network Mm -hmm. of Early Language Learning, even though I never taught elementary and I'm not involved in elementary anymore, but it is such an amazing group of professionals. And you are right. I think we do need to pay attention um, to Mm -hmm. what what they say, because there is a lot of great things going on. So I love that we're going to talk, we can talk more about that. So I I agree 100%. So, so to introduce this topic to me today, what we're going to talk about, I saw this, I believe it was Sculpt that you did it, It correct? Yeah. So I saw it in the program, but I was busy and I couldn't go. And so I I selfishly (laughs) reached out and said, Hey, Matt, do you want to do this on the podcast? Because I would love to talk to you, pick your brain about this. So tell us the topic, tell us the title and kind of why how this came about and why this is important um, that you want to talk about So the, uh, it was an invited workshop at Skolt. So shout out to Skolt, which is, you know, we, or I, at least, and we were just talking about this, you know, you move out of your region or your state, but you sort of feel like, you know, I live in the Midwest now, but I'm every year I'm like, I want to go back to Skolt. I want to go back to Flank, which is the North Carolina state organization, right? I'm like, those are my roots. Those are my home. Those are my people. Uh, so the invitation came through from a colleague at Skolt to do a workshop. And I thought, of course, I absolutely will come. I didn't get to travel back down South, unfortunately, um, but we did it virtually and it was great. Um, so the topic of the workshop was novice level language, not novice level brains, engaging and empowering learners. And the sort of underlying thinking so there's this great scene for members of the audience who have ever watched the show modern family which is you know great sitcom kind of show um sofia Vergara's character has this one scene that always stood out to me i mean i remember it so clearly the first time i saw it she's like yelling at her family about something and she says do you even know how smart i am in spanish and you know of course being pretty young the, maybe the first time it didn't 
strike quite the same chord. But over the years, you know, listening to so many sort of thought leaders in our field and doing some research myself and engaging sort of with teachers on the ground and scholars in the academy and sort of everybody working towards this goal of how do we make language learning and teaching better, more equitable, more effective, more whatever. Um, there's this tendency that we tend to have, I think, as humans, not perhaps so much as language teachers, but as language users, humans, we often reduce like the complexity and the intelligence of other humans to their language abilities, right? We decide that somebody is only as smart as they can language. And if they don't language in English, for example, we don't assume that they might have a PhD or mm -hmm. that they might be a doctor, you know, like a medical doctor, or they might be a lawyer, or they might be, you know, this complex human whose life is no less complicated and rich than our own. But because they don't language in a way that we can understand, mm -hmm. we, we simplify them. And I think one of the biggest challenges when there's a gap between the sort of cognitive level and life experience of a language learner and their language abilities, we as teachers really sometimes struggle to help them language in a way that doesn't insult their life experience. And yeah. I struggle, I have struggled with that for years, right? So I ran this gambit sort of back and forth between all these different age groups. And while in so many ways, language teaching is language teaching in the sense that people need input and they need to be able to mm -hmm. understand and you need to be engaging. And if they're not paying attention, they're probably not learning. And, you know, all of those sort of big things hold true. It's very different to engage with the same content in some ways with, um, you know, a six-year-old and a 60-year-old. So it's sort of, can we find ways to accomplish the goal of, you know, novice level language teaching and then moving them out of that, that is not intellectually insulting? Yeah, I, I 100%. You know, it's, it's yeah. Exact, I think that's a good word for it. Mm -hmm. And I don't think you that we often notice that we're even doing right. that, right? Um, I, I was uh, horrified at one point early in my career and I was uh, a a Spanish speaker was talking and somebody realized they weren't, you know, they were speaking in English and it was a little bit, mm -hmm. you know, they were, their proficiency level was good, but not perfect, you know? And uh, mm -hmm. the other person stopped, like stopped talking and then started talking louder and slower. And right. you're just like, no, 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 right. no. Right. But I think exactly. we tend to do that. Like, they're not hard of hearing, you know, you don't have to speak Correct. louder. You don't need to speak slower. You can still have conversation. Yeah, it, it's hard. And and I think you're right. Like we need to check ourselves a lot because I think yeah. it's a human thing to some extent. It's not, you know, meant to be, you know, um, it's not intentionally insulting. We're not trying right. to be that way. But but yeah, I right. think stopping and asking ourselves and then having strategies, right? Like, and that's what we're going to talk exactly. about. Like, how do we do this in a respectful way, right? Yeah. So one of the examples that I sort of led with this workshop that, you know, from my own experience, right, we think about, you know, there's so many teachers and, you know, textbooks and units and whatever that are related some in some way to like health, right? And then in a health unit, inevitably, you're gonna get at, you know, the need to talk about your body, maybe your body parts for various purposes, right? My head hurts, my whatever. So you'll get people who are like, looking for comprehensible input. So they play head, shoulders, knees, and toes. And they want the kids to like sing along and whatever. And in elementary school, sure. In sixth grade, they, they will do it. But when they hit that seventh grade transition, for whatever reason, they're too cool for it now. They're like, yeah. whoa, that's little kid stuff, right? Like, so how do you get the same content in a way that doesn't make them go, that's little kid stuff? You know, mm -hmm. I tell my college students all the time that some of the best sort of purely language input in terms of uh, comprehensibility, in terms of repetitiveness, uh, sort of, you know, you know, ability to be anticipated, right? You can predictability, mm -hmm. that's the word, um, is like young kids' cartoons, right? Cartoons are repetitive. They're sort of in the here and now. They're not displaced in time and space. Um, but and then you get students, right, who will go sit in the library and watch Peppa Pig <laughs> in Chinese, and they'll be really happy about it. But then other students are like, I'm not watching that. That's right. for three-year-olds. And I'm like, right, and you're 21, and you're sort of 
age and pride and life experience is rebelling against this thing that I'm trying to do for language learning. Mm -hmm. And this mismatch, if it works, great. But if it doesn't, then what am I just going to say? Well, too bad. You won't watch Peppa Pig. I guess you can't learn Chinese. No, Mm -hmm. it's on me to then think about what else is possible. You know, what else can we do? Um, And that's, that's definitely been a challenge. Um, It continues to be a challenge. I think, you know, teaching college students, who are novice language learners, you know, they don't need to learn their colors, right? Like conceptually, mm-hmm. they don't need to learn colors. But how do, so how do we make communication about, you know, that is going to incorporate if this is language that has to be taught for whatever reason? Correct. Right. You know, how do we incorporate it in a way that's not just, you know, as my old advisor used to say, I'm a book, you're a book, everybody's a book. You know, it's not that repetitive sort of right. display question, what color is my shirt? Like, right. we don't ask those questions in normal, you know, communication. Right. We can just point to our shirt, right? We don't right. have to. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So what are some suggestions, some some things that you've learned, you've heard? I know that, um, you know, one of the things I loved about your description in the program was also that this is a conversation. This is a brainstorming, right? This is things yes. you, you don't just come up with all of these things yourself. You know, you talk to other teachers and you communicate, totally. right? So what are some things that that you are some examples that you can share of how we can make, we can all do this better? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I guess I would start by saying that, um, you know, it's important to me to, uh, cite my sources, right? It's, it's really important. I think it's easy to not do that. And we mm-hmm. sort of feel like all of our ideas, we're like working in this collective, especially on places like social media, it's like collective shared space. Um, and it's easy to sort of take an idea and then share it with somebody else. Yeah. Well-meaning, right? In a way that you're like, I just want to get this great idea out into the world. Um, so there's going to be ideas all throughout, you know, this sort of stuff that we talked about that day in the workshop. Um, but I figured it'd be good to go ahead and shout out some people. That's so awesome. That, you know, we're citing the sources and then we'll continue to cite them as we go. But yeah, people, and you can give me a list and I can cite those in the show notes as well. Any, anybody awesome. anybody yeah. else that, that we want to give credit to? Because you're right. We want to, you know, sometimes well-meaning, you know, we're well-meaning, but we don't always do that. We don't always know where that original idea and thought came from. Exactly. So, so I love that. Let's see. So there's some elementary school colleagues that I learned a lot from on social media. So you have Dory Conlon Perigini in Connecticut mm-hmm. and Francois Thenew, who was in uh, Philadelphia last I knew. Um, but both of them work in elementary school and do a ton of really great work with sort of this meaningful communication and critical thinking, critical awareness, anti-racism, all this great stuff, even with elementary school students. And they share very freely on Twitter too. So two of them, they have informed this thinking to be sure. I mentioned Rose Rhodes a minute ago. I'm going to cite some of her stuff here in a minute. Um, There's, oh man, there's so many people. There's people in universities like LJ Randolph, who was in North Carolina and like me as a Tar Heel, who's coming to the Midwest very soon. Um, There's, the sort of the thought leaders of our world, some of whom are still language teachers, some of whom are perhaps not language teachers anymore, but still contributing. So you get uh, Uju Anya is a name that jumps out to me. Stacy Johnson, yeah. Nelson Flores, Jonathan Drosa. Uh, there was somebody else who just popped into my brain, Jose Medina. So there's lots mm-hmm. of people on Twitter who are sort of, who have, you know, who I feel like I've absorbed these ideas from slowly over time that have, sort of coalesced here in, in some of the thoughts that I was able to share with some colleagues at Skolt. Um, but so I wanted to give some shout outs first and then we'll, we'll continue to shout them out as, as I love that. Uh, I love that. We'll try and take yeah. them all on, the, on Twitter after this is done too. Perfect. Cause they are all um, amazing people one, for sure to follow. Yeah. I mean, just people that I, you know, it's <laughs> Twitter is one of those spaces, right. Where sometimes we feel conflicted about, uh, do I want to spend all of this time on social media? And I have been tempted many a time to say, you know, I'm not going to be on social media anymore. But then I encounter these people who share so freely. And yeah. if, I, if we weren't on Twitter, we wouldn't have connected. And I'm like, oh, maybe I'll stay. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> thankful for these people who keep me on Twitter. To be sure. For sure. Um, a couple other names I want to not forget are uh, so former colleagues of mine at the National Foreign Language Center who are like some of the PD geniuses of our field. You have Laura Terrell, who yes. probably was the first person to really push me in curriculum design to sort of 
think beyond the language into sort of where are we getting the critical thinking from. There's lots of ideas around images that I learned from Laura that I'll talk about. And uh, Thomas Sauer was always on that team and was always asking me really hard questions that I generally never knew the answer to. But, <laughs> Thomas you know, is really back, good I'm at grateful. that. <laughs> He's really, really good at the hard questions. Really and is. I appreciate him for that. I agree. Um, so Thomas directed me once to, I think he got it from Katrina Griffin, I'm pretty sure, because I see her talking about them often. But one of the things that I've started to do in my classes probably four years ago now that I love are these, they're called thinking routines. They're from Project 180 at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. Hmm. Um, and they weren't designed for world language. So they weren't, they didn't initiate in world language. They, they started as these routines for critical thinking. Um, and some of the ones that are probably familiar to many of us are things like think, pair, share. But one of my favorites is, um, you know, you get like, I used to think, but now I know. Mm, I love uh, that. Another one that I love is see, think, wonder. Um, and one of the things that I think that sort of was a thread throughout my talk was using images because I think images, something I learned from Laura a long time ago is images sort of let your brain do what it's going to do, even if your language can't quite get there, right? You're, you can engage in critical thinking and be thinking all of these thoughts, have all this background knowledge active and have all of these, you know, possibilities sort of swimming around your mind, even if what you end up producing in terms of language is really simple. And um, probably the first example of this I ever saw when I was 16 and sort of looking for inspiration for my very first Spanish class was this presentation that used to be online and unfortunately I can't find it anymore, but Helena Curtin did this awesome presentation. And one of the things she showed was from an elementary school kid who put up a picture of a Jaguar, you know, like a, from the Amazon and they captioned the picture in Spanish. No soy un abrigo. I'm not a coat. And the language super simple, right? Like that is That's very, great. what we would say Spanish one. It's very yeah. simple present tense, you know, nothing fancy going on there, but the depth of knowledge and thinking that I'm not a coat reflects as a caption for an endangered animal is huge, right? Yeah. And is, is much more than my coat is black, right? Same language, mm -hmm. but a very different depth of thinking. Um, so, you know, all the way back there, had me thinking, okay, images might be, pictures might be a thing we can, we can really rely on. So See, Think, Wonder is one of my favorites. Um, and it's, it is what it sounds like. It's kind of a three-phase process. You put an image or a text or whatever. I like images because um, every level can use images. And you start with sort of a list of what do you see? And it can be just that simple. You can, you as the teacher can kind of elicit more language, right? You can ask mm -hmm. for details. You can ask for what color is the thing? Where is it? What is it next to, right? You can push for more rich language. Um, but that really is kind of a brainstorming session. Think is then making opinion sort of statements based on the observations. I think this person is doing this. I think this person is feeling this kind of way. I think these people are about to go do whatever. Um, and then wonder is asking questions, right? So you observe sort of surface level, what are all the things you see? interpret what do you think about them and then end with what else could be going on here what are other possibilities so that's the kind of canonical order um, that's the order that it comes from on the project zero website but i've actually found a lot of success inverting step two and step three so i do see wonder think for like three reasons um one is because i don't think we spend enough time sort of doing asking questions i think we talk about it a lot and say intermediate level learners need to be able to <laughs> i was just thinking the same thing yeah it, it, but we don't do it true. you know it, it, and it's hard to do it organically right it's hard to do it in a way that's not just like ask the person next to you what's their name right. and you're like i've known this person since first grade like right. i don't know their name like, yeah, yeah you know yeah. so it's hard when yeah. when if we're the the generators and the source of the responses all the time it gets boring so mm -hmm. having an image sort of an external to the people in the room source of inspiration can be useful um so one it's sort of question generation with some novelty two i think questions are less threatening than opinions um because then it's okay to be wrong because it's a question yeah I right like that. and then 
three, you get a little bit of, like you kind of avoid maybe two related negative consequences of opinion statements. One being, you know, somebody in class disagrees and is like, well, you're wrong. And then you kind of derails the whole thing because we're communicating, right? We're, mm-hmm. we're talking and somebody's like, I disagree. And it goes sideways. Um, or you kind of get a rabbit hole. You avoid the rabbit hole of somebody says this thing and that takes the conversation in a direction that then leaves a lot of stuff on the table. So I really like see, wonder, think. I like it in that order. I'm sure there's good reasons and research why it was in the other order. But uh, that's one for me that, again, you can get at really simple, you know, you can get really simple language that reflects or that pushes people to have really deep thoughts. So, you know, I had, I'll put up like advertisements. And I remember one that I use with students all the time to show how different Pizza Hut is in China versus in the U.S. So in China, Pizza Hut is like a sit-down restaurant. In the U.S., it is not. Um, And we look at this Pizza Hut ad and it's like six friends sitting around a table with like all this food piled up all over the table. And, you know, some of the questions that my students will ask is like, how much money, how much does this all cost? Can they eat all of the food? Right. So then we're getting at questions like food waste and responsible consumption. But we're talking about, you know, we're talking about a picture and we're just asking questions. They can think all of these answers. We can even scaffold the answers if we really want them. But it really is getting the language that we want and getting the brain engaged. And even if those things aren't quite happening at the same level, as long as they're both happening, you sort of feel satisfied on both levels it's kind of the idea yeah and so I, that's one and that's i love and i love that, I love that idea too the pictures that we show can really make a difference you know and i and again i want to say it was lara terrell but i i don't know i'm probably crediting her instead somebody else but i remember when we were talking about <clears throat> they were showing a unit about food and again you can show generic food on a table or you can show food in a supermarket with lots of choice right. in the u.s and very a different sort of way of shopping and what those things imply from those pictures is what's, again, it's deep. It's very, you know, nuanced. It's bringing to some deeper sort of consumption issues, you know, and, and a lot of things, choice, lots of different things you can get from that. But again, the, the language can be, I see, you know, I see this food, I see it over here too, but it's a whole different context. And, and I love that idea of it doesn't have to be complicated um, but you can right. bring these things in just in very easy kind of ways, right? Just looking at the images. I, I love that. Yeah, exactly. And and I guess one, I don't know, word of caution, I would say one that, that I think a lot of colleagues have been pointing out that I really appreciate this sort of constant reminder uh, is to critically examine the things we choose, right? The pictures that we Absolutely. choose. Um, and to remember and sort of, engage openly and honestly with our students, even if it means a minute or two of a shared language that's not the target language that, you know, this one picture is not representative of everybody's lifestyle and that we're not, you know, we shouldn't take this and apply this as the norm to everyone, which is why I love Stacey Johnson often talks about using individual people, like the biography almost of an actual person and that she's even done, I think she published a paper not that long ago talking about sort of the what you get when you're interacting with the, the idea of an individual versus sort of an amorphous group. And you get a lot more sort of sympathy, empathy, seeing commonalities and avoiding sort of the group level stereotypes, mm-hmm. which I think is really hard to do at the novice level if you're not being intentional about it, which kind of leads me to this other thing that we talked about in this workshop that... uh I I love to do and and Rose Rhodes and I one time we were on our way back I think we were on our way back from a conference on the West Coast and we sat on a plane and based on this conversation like sketched out an entire unit that then we both went back and did with our respective students which you know gotta love a colleague I who love that write it on a napkin like it was we literally wrote it on a napkin and we both did it for like the next two weeks and I had adults who were you know in their awesome. like middle aged adults and she had. I think she was teaching high school students at that time and we both did it and we shared resources and it was really cool. So what, what we talked about was the, just taking the simple sort of statements that are perhaps generic 
at best and maybe a little stereotypical at worst in novice level classrooms where we say things like Chinese people eat dumplings. People from Mexico eat tacos, right? We say these things and we're trying to get at the third person plural verb conjugation or we're trying to use the vocabulary or we're trying to talk about food and we don't want to introduce complexity into the language by saying some people sometimes in some places do this thing, but not everybody. It's complicated, you know? And, and I, so I respect the need for language that's understandable and processable, but we run the risk, right? When, when our students trust us to be teaching them about other parts of the world, perhaps to which they don't have much exposure and don't have a lot of knowledge, you know, that comes with a lot of responsibility. There's a lot of responsibility to be aware of the stories we're telling and the right we have or don't have to even tell those stories, but then to make sure that we're being part of the solution, not part of the problem. And one of the cool things that we brainstormed that day on the plane back from Portland was, what if we take some of those sentences and we just turn them into questions? We get the same language. We get questions again, which we love. And questions, again, give you this openness, this, it's okay if I, the teacher, don't know the answer. And I tell, I have told rooms full of people, I don't care if you're a quote-unquote native speaker or a quote-unquote non-native speaker. Those terms are a little problematic, but we'll use them for simplicity's sake. Even if you are a native speaker of whatever language, you don't speak for all speakers of that language. You can't possibly have lived every life experience. If you're a Spanish speaker, for example, if you're from Chile, you might not know anything about Colombia. So Mm -hmm. you have no more right in some ways than somebody who grew up in the United States or in England to sort of be the authority, right? sort of the beauty. And I think a lot of teachers struggle with like, well, what do I do if I don't know? You know, don't I have to know? But what I think the beauty of turning everything into questions is not only modeling intellectual humility, which sounds nice and fancy, but being like, I don't know. And that's fine. <laughs> Just embracing yeah. the, I don't know, let's learn, let's figure it out. Um, and, and I don't know, I think students respond really well to that. So we had this, our unit that we sort of made together started with people in Mexico eat tacos. And we turned that into Do people in Mexico eat tacos? And then suddenly we had this list of like 20 questions that came from that one, which was like, you know, where do people eat tacos? When do people eat tacos? How do people eat tacos? What is a taco? Is there such a thing as an authentic taco? Is Taco Bell authentic? (laughs) Is there Taco Bell in Mexico? Yeah, that's great. Are tacos expensive? Are they healthy? Do other people in Latin America eat tacos, right? So we had all of these questions is sort of turned into these like daily explorations. And I remember one of my, we did a, like a, it was like a vocab activity, right. With, with a set of my students where everybody made a list of like, what is an authentic taco and what is a non-authentic taco to them. And it was really interesting to compare the lists, you know, whose tacos had cheese on them, whose tacos had, you know, cilantro on them and what kind of tortilla were they in And what were you basing it on, right? Then we got students who were saying, well, Taco Bell is this way. And somebody's like, well, my neighbor who's from Guadalajara did it, does it this way. When we go to her house for taco night, it's this. And we got, and this was a novice level class, right? But we got all of these, it was like a flip grid and I don't have access to it anymore. I lost the flip grid and I'm so sad about it because it was one of the coolest things ever. And it just started again with this like culture Friday from a textbook that was like tacos in Mexico. And I was like, yeah, I think it's more complicated than that. Let's turn it into a question. And now let's explore this in our language class. And I don't know, one of the coolest things about this kind of, I don't know, this kind of stuff in language classes is you not only get the like, I don't know, I think often about the many, many people who all of us as language teachers encounter who are like, oh, I took French in high school, but I don't remember any French. And like, on the one hand, I'm like, you're saying it kind of as a joke, but like, aren't you, you are actually really sad about it, right? Like you're telling me that and there's regret bubbling up, you know, from there. But I think about like, okay, well, what do you remember? You don't remember French, but what do you remember from French class? Do you remember learning you know, do you remember learning about people you didn't know existed? Do you remember feeling excluded because you felt like people who look or sound like you can't speak French, can't use French, are not authentic users of French? Mm -hmm. Do you remember 
learning something cool about the world. Yeah. I don't know. One of my favorite things is when students come back and they're like telling me about a, a conversation they had at dinner with a peer that they're like, I learned this in Spanish class and the conversation happens in English, mm-hmm. right? But they learned like knowledge was acquired about the world, about themselves, about yeah. something in our language class. And I'm like, that's pretty cool. It's pretty cool to be able to, to, uh, to do that. Oh, I agree. I think that just flipping that to the question that you talked about, honestly, is like brilliant. Like to me, I'm like, that is just amazing because you're absolutely right. It just changes the whole tone and the whole conversation in so many ways. Um, and it, and, yeah, and I it's think liberating. Yeah. I, 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 like, seriously, like, I'm just like, oh my gosh, like now my mind is like mm-hmm. sitting here thinking like, oh my gosh, like how many ways you can do this. But I, and I think the other thing is like, often we don't know as teachers how to bring up some of these things, like you said, without yeah. like, again, jumping, jump, you know, jumping into these kind of generalizations and stereotypes and, you know, just different things. It, and it's hard to navigate this. And I, I love the idea that you can just flip the question and you can bring up those things in a natural, organic sort of way not judgy, not like I'm going to teach you. And like you said, like, we're not going to now discuss the origin of tacos everywhere. Um, but, but again, right. it gives it, it's a conversation and I, and I, and I'm sure like now everybody is much more, not that tacos aren't intrinsically interesting, but you can do that with anything. Right. You know, right. and, and again, exactly. it, I also think it takes that I am the teacher I am the dispenser of the knowledge of and or the textbook right. or the novel or whatever as being the the, right. the fount of the knowledge, right? And and exactly. we get to put it on that learner and and ask their opinions and what do they think and why don't you find out? And uh, I really think that just yeah. flips that perspective uh, on its head. Some of the coolest things I've seen, I like I remember, I remember Dory Dory Conlon Perugini shared one time even with elementary school students, I'm like 96% sure it was her. She talked about, you know, finding a meaningful way to do colors, right. As a sort of a a topic in a language class. And she talked about framing it in terms of accessibility, like what is high contrast and low contrast? What colors can you pair well together to be visible or to help somebody who's colorblind, you know, make sure they can see the difference that red and green shouldn't go together, things like that. And I was like, whoa, mind blown, brilliant. Like, will steal and use with my college students because that's something that they do badly on their PowerPoints in every class, right? Not just in mine. They go do a presentation in a history class and they're using like red on a green background and like, don't do that. Like that, that, that is actually not good. You know, um, I don't know. There's this, there was a, uh, there's a scholar who I, I deeply respect, uh, who's retired now from Georgetown, um, but who's very, very well known sort of in the genre of instructed SLA. Heidi Burns mm-hmm. is her name. She's a, a German professor and was integral very early in the proficiency movement. Um, and she talks about sort of, at least in the university level, but I think this is true at every level to some extent about sort of the bifurcated language program that we have two years of contentless language. And then we get two years or perhaps one year if it's high school level one, two, three AP of almost languageless content, right? And I would challenge anybody in the audience who was like a language major in college. Probably means you were a literature major. Yep. And like how much better did your language get when the focus shifted to literature? Probably some, but probably the improvements were incremental, were not intentional, probably were despite the instruction, not because of it. And I think this sort of sacrificing content for language or sacrificing language for content in the name of being thorough. Mm -hmm. Like I totally get it. There are so many, and I was this teacher and I have so many friends who were these teachers and some are not anymore and some still are. And, you know, everybody's on this journey differently, but you know, we want to be thorough, right? We want to teach people well. So we're like past tense has come up. Now I have to teach you all of the past tense. And it's not to harm you. It's not to overwhelm you. It's not to make you feel dumb. It is because I want what is best for you, which is I want you to be able to communicate about all the things in the past tense. So for the next three weeks, we're going to do verb conjugations. And we did that from a place of love. Like I truly do not believe that teachers wake up in the morning ever and go, I want to do a bad job today. I fundamentally don't believe that. I think we do better and then we know better and then we do better. 
But I think when we reframe the conversation to go, you know what, even if I do teach you all the verb conjugations and all the vocabulary on the page 17 of the textbook, you're not going to learn it all, right? That teaching and learning are separate processes. And I, <laughs> I ask this question of teachers all the time, which is, you know, can you learn without a teacher? Yes. Can a teacher teach without somebody there to learn? No. No. So which one of us is here to serve which one oh, of us? Oh, I love that. Right? Which one of us has to be here and which one of us gets to be here? And what do we do with that knowledge? We, do we make the process of learning more efficient? Like, you know, with me, you can learn more than you could learn without me in the same amount of time. Do we make it more enjoyable? Because learning by yourself, like reading mm -hmm. a textbook, is miserable for most people. You know, do we make it more effective in that, like, we can structure learning in a certain way and give you like a progression. We can give you feedback. We can encourage you, right? I think when we examine our roles as teachers and we realize that we're here to help, then we can ask ourselves, you know, mm -hmm. is what we're doing helping? And we can look back at those, like, I was trying to help you by teaching you all the verbs and go, right, that you didn't learn them all anyway. So by combining language with content, and feeling like, but I'm sacrificing a portion of language to do content. The language isn't going to be perfect, whatever. We can pause and go, right, but it never was. Right. And this is much more rich, right? Doing both feels like you're only getting some vocabulary and you're only getting some structure and you're only whatever. But the benefit to me, like far, far outweighs the perceived sacrifice, and I don't even think it's a sacrifice, mm -hmm. but I used to, and I really did. I used to rebel strongly against this idea of like, we're going to learn knowledge in my Spanish class. I'm like, I don't have time for that. I don't <laughs> have time to teach you Spanish, right. much less like have you think about the fact that there's Spanish speaking countries on four different continents. Mm -hmm. But then mm -hmm. I go, why? Because you could learn that. And then if you, if you grow up and tell a language teacher in 20 years, I took Spanish in high school, but I forgot it all. Maybe you will have at least like learned about the diversity of what is the Spanish speaking world mm -hmm. and realize that, you know, that there are people who look like me in every single country in the Spanish speaking world, you know, white, blue eyes, red hair or blonde hair. There are people of African descent in every single Spanish-speaking country. Like Uju Anya has this wonderful book about uh, Black students from the U.S. studying abroad in Brazil and engaging with this entire world that in their Portuguese classes they didn't know anything yeah. about, which was that there are Black Portuguese speakers in Brazil, and finally realizing, whoa, this curriculum could include me. It doesn't. I don't, I don't know. Mm -hmm. There's just lots of – the content to me – is equally it will draw you or keep you just as much as the language itself will or can so i think it's worth you know thinking about both yeah well and i think you know going back to what we talked about originally about not just about brains in general not novice brains or whatever brains but again like mm -hmm. when you have authentic language and authentic reasons for you know, learning about this that do make these connections, that is going to prime you for better learning and understanding, you know, so I, exactly. it, it does increase motivation and interest and engagement and, and lots of other things as well. So uh, I, I agree. I'm with totally. you. <laughs> I'm with you. Yeah. And I, I guess it. building on that a little bit, another, this one has come up and this is, this is sort of a hot topic borderline buzzword, um, but I think really important and perhaps still quite misunderstood. And I'm not sure we're 100% engaging in the right ways in world languages yet. I think this, so there's this, this concept of translanguaging, right, has come up and it really came out of dual language bilingual programs starting kind of in New York City, but all over the US. And, and it's become a huge thing uh, in sort of the applied linguistics research world as well. But I think the, the, the takeaway for world language teachers, to me, um, because we, we don't have quite the same, we don't always have quite the same sort of social hierarchy of languages that we're dealing with in the sense that if you get a kid who grows up speaking Spanish, they go to school at five, 
they're in a bilingual program, but suddenly they're not allowed to use their Spanish or they're right, punished for the way they use their English or they're quote unquote mixing languages. And that's being, they're being told, no, don't do that. Right. We have a different relationship with the sort of the balance of languages or the target language and the shared language in a world language program. I think, and my thinking on this is definitely still developing, but I think it is really important to remember as world language teachers that our goal isn't monolingualism, right? That, that that isn't the goal. And sometimes I think we tacitly treat it like it is. We're like 90% target language, target language only. I don't understand you. Say that in whatever language. And the kids, like I've watched kids in classrooms ask their teacher in English, can I go to the bathroom? And the teacher's like, Chinese, please. And I'm like, read the room. Like, that, that was This wasn't the moment for that. And, and again, well-intentioned, yeah. right? I have limited time. I know you know how to use the target language to do that. You get no Chinese outside of this room. Yeah. I'm trying to maximize, right? I'm, I'm doing my 90%. Like I, I'm listening to what Actful says. All of those things, well-intentioned, but impact perhaps is not ideal. So I I don't know. I was I remember listening to this podcast episode uh, of Stacy's podcast, We mm-hmm. Teach Languages, must have been years ago, and um Dory actually interviewed Jonathan Drosak, who's a, a linguistic anthropologist at Stanford. And uh, one of the things he asked, that question sort of like resonated with me in, in just a really profound way. He sort of reminded us that even bilingualism or multilingualism isn't actually the end point. The, it's not our goal in the sense that and I love people like Dory who talk about this so openly on Twitter, you know, language learning does not by default make you any more empathetic, any more critical thinking, any more tolerant, any more right. anything. None of those things, right? Those are not like, you know, cause and effect relationships. It definitely can happen. And there might even be a correlation between people who learn languages and people who exhibit certain traits in the world. Sure, perhaps, although those traits might not be good ones. I would, you know, remind people that historically, people who engaged in the enslavement, purchase, and sale of humans were multilingual and multicultural. There's a beautiful but heart-wrenching documentary series on Netflix that shows how well people who engaged in enslavement knew the languages and cultures of the people insofar as being able to give them the right food and talk to them in the right way that would encourage them to go on the middle passage, for example. Those were multilinguals, right? So multilingualism isn't the goal, you know, and what Jonathan asked the question that really struck me was bilingualism in service to what, right? Like, what is the goal? And if we step back and think, hmm, the goal of my language teaching endeavor, sure, is that you learn the language, right? That, that, That comes with the territory. But if that's not the only goal, then I think this becomes a much more meaningful enterprise. And I don't know, I think it's really easy to talk about that. I think it's really easy to theorize about that. I think it's easy to say, merge language with content, have students do authentic things, you know, don't promote stereotypes, blah, 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 blah. It's really easy to say all of these things. And it is really hard to do some of them, much less all Mm -hmm. of them. But I think if we collectively hold one another responsible for that question to the bilingual, multilingual in service to what, it's easy to then expand beyond borders. For example, I love something Rebecca Blue Wolf does on Twitter frequently is that she shares resources that are in French, but that are not about the French-speaking world. So she shares like... um something about Chinese New Year or the Lunar New Year in French that then her students will use in French one. But that has nothing to do with on the surface. Right. It seems like, why would you learn about Chinese culture in France? But then you remember that there's a ton of Chinese people right. in France <laughs> and that there are people in the room right. who might celebrate the Lunar New Year. Yeah. Right. We talked about Dia de Muertos in my Chinese class this past year. And I had a student come to me and say, I felt so seen because my family celebrates and none of my friends do. So I never talk about it with my friends. And suddenly like there I am in a Chinese class of all places. That's amazing. Right. You know, I had, I had students 
this year also come to me and say, you know, in all my years of education as a senior in college, you know, I have never seen a teacher use pictures of people who look like me in a PowerPoint ever. And I'm like, you're 22. You have literally been through all of formal education. And for you to, you know, to say this, right, is on the one hand, I feel like, wow, I'm glad I did it. I mean, yeah. I'm glad I have had enough people to tell me to be intentional about my choices mm-hmm. and I can always do better too. But at the same time, I'm like, in, in how many years, yeah. right? So I don't know. I, I think a lot about this conversation that, that Dory and Jonathan had and that really pushes me to remember that if multilingualism in and of itself is not the goal, what else are we doing? And what will they take away if at if some portion of our students, sad though it is to say, will not go on to be regular users of the language, will they look back and say, I know something about me that I didn't know before. I know somebody mm-hmm. about my community that I didn't know before. I know something about the world that I didn't know before. And if the answer is no, I guess I would challenge us to say, why not? You know, why do we feel like that doesn't have a place in our classroom? I, yeah, I, it's something I think. I think I, and what I love most about this podcast and talking to people like you is like we started on one sort of path and it kind of goes in different places where the heart goes, mm-hmm. but it's so connected. And so like what I'm thinking, I'm thinking back to like, even if this mind shift or mind kind of change, this this shift in your mindset and the way you think, even if that's, that's to me is kind of where you start because you can't find the images that are going to be impactful if you, if you're not thinking beyond the, the, the typical, like the, the, what usually is right. It's a visit to the doctor's office for body parts and it's, it's, it's ordering at a restaurant. Right. And those are the, the kind of go-to we've been, you know, that's how I learned it. That's how I taught it. That's, you know, that's our, our default. Right. And it's hard, it's yes. so hard for well, for our brains to break out of that default. And so if you exactly. do ask yourself like, okay, I'm looking at, I, you know, we're going to talk about identity and, you know, we, everybody has the, I am mm-hmm. tall, I am short. Well, who cares? You can see I'm tall. You can see I'm short. You can see I'm whatever, <laughs> you know, but when we say, okay, well, what about identity would, could, does have meaning that we could bring in or family and how could we find images about families that are beyond just a family tree that is again, typically a certain look <laughs> to it, perhaps in the textbook, yes. no deep questions can be asked of that picture that is a family tree. Um, But I think to infographics that have like, what are the breakdown of families in China, in Mexico, in, you know, Africa, France, whoever, um, you know, different images of those things and how that's where we start, (laughs) you know, they say, what is the goal here besides, you know, the obvious? Um, And then, and then how can we ask questions and how can we engage, you know, our students with those? And I think those are two really powerful things to take away about, um, you know, the topic we're talking about with, no, with novice language. Yeah, you know? exactly. It's exactly. It's the, for me, it's, it's the language of course. And I will be the first to say, you know, at least the identity that I claim is, you know, I'm a language mm-hmm. teacher and first and foremost, that is how I see myself. I don't, you know, I, I don't take anything away from anybody else, but I, I wouldn't call myself first and foremost, you know, a content teacher, for example, that, that, that is not how I view my job. But I don't think that those things are antithetical right. either, right? And I'm, so for me, it really is about the learning and the takeaways and the knowledge. And I think all of that opens itself up. Again, I don't think it's cause and effect, direct sort of linearity, but it opens itself up surely to lots of questions and lots of important conversations and important examinations of things like inclusivity and mm-hmm. you know who is which topics am I choosing and which areas of these topics and who is sitting in the room, you know, here, do they feel seen? Do they feel like this is relevant? Do they feel like, you know, their brains are being engaged? Um, And I've even been doing some really interesting research in preparation for a talk that a professor of mine is going to be giving about, you know, how tests, even big tests, like big standardized tests, 
disadvantaged people, and this is this is you know new to me, not new to the field perhaps, but new to me, in that when tests are not culturally relevant to the test taker, you know, it's actually really hard to get at something like comprehension because there's a level of assumed knowledge, right? That the person actually doesn't have. And then there's a fairness question and all of these things, right? So, you know, it's kind of a circular logic is the way my brain works perhaps, but really I think these things are the critical thinking, the critical awareness, the questioning one's own biases, the creating an inclusive environment. I think these things are all really related and uh, really do have a place sort of at the heart of the conversations that I hope we have in our departments or in our districts or in our schools where we do kind of curriculum planning and we think about, I have to teach this content or I want to teach this content. You know, level one, sometimes I wonder as a field, I know there's this huge push for, uh, you know, um, thematic units and and all of these things, which I think in, again, in, in intention are great. Sometimes I wonder how far we've actually moved away from textbooks because we're still like level one is like greetings and families and times and dates and hobbies and whatever. And I'm like, just because you repackage it doesn't perhaps mean that it's that different from a textbook. But Rose, again, Rose and I have given, we gave a keynote a few years ago at Flank and we talked about, you know, this idea of if I have to teach this language or I have to teach this, whatever, these vocabulary words, can I do it in a way that will prompt or at least make possible, you know, critical thinking, critical learning, uh, feeling included, seeing oneself represented mm-hmm. Uh, wondering something, you know, kind of curiosity about the world, novelty, you know, and I think there's really good research. Uh, Donna Clementi and Laura Terrell did a presentation a few years ago at Actful that was about, you know, learning in the brain and how things yeah. like novelty, curiosity, stimulate learning and make learning more durable. So again, sort of, I, I totally respect, and I saw a teacher the other day on Twitter say something like, you know, how am I supposed to do anti-bias, anti-racism, 90% target language, you know, be, be mindful of every single one of my resources, keep track of my 150 students, respond to parent emails, go to staff meetings, live mm-hmm. through a pandemic, etc. you know. And so I, while I love truly from the bottom of my heart, love the conversations that we have on Twitter, I think it is important to, you know, remind ourselves that this work is really complex. Nobody has everything figured out and that we know better than we do better, mm-hmm. you know, and that it really is an incremental process of trying to find the commonality between these things that sometimes sound really disparate, right? Comprehensible mm-hmm. language and interculturality and anti-racism and all of these things that seem like if I put my energy here, am I sacrificing all these other areas? The truth is I don't think so. But nobody's going to jump from, you know, all I've ever used is a textbook and I've never really thought about what is where and why it's that way. And I never actually even took the time to look in the the pictures of the textbook and count Mm -hmm. how many different kinds of people are represented there and sort of do just a tally of of that um, to now... I'm going to be the expert in all Decolonize things. Decolonize my no, curriculum, right? And, and, <laughs> yeah, no, no. And 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 a hundred percent those things require the expertise of others. That and there are so many people in the field who now are, you know, are being are finally being recognized for the work that they've been doing in those areas for a long time, decolonization, anti-racism in our curriculum. And so, you know, pay those <laughs> people, <laughs> ask those people to come bring them in for these important conversations. Yeah. Um, you know, and recognize them for the work that they have also freely shared all over the place. But yeah, I don't know. I think, I think it really boils down to, to two things. Um, one is not, I don't know, it's sort of not insulting the intelligence of your students, right? Remembering that they are, that so often when they're novices, we get this really limited window into who they really are as complex humans and our interactions can be really limited if we are really 
Like you must only speak the target language with me, you know? And I used to be, I really was that way for a while. And I realized how much of my students I was missing, Mm -hmm. you know? I just realized that like, I don't know you, you don't know me and we don't have enough time to, you know, I get 50 hours a semester to get to know these humans. So we're going to do some reflection writing in English. Mm -hmm. We're going to do a questionnaire at the beginning of the semester in English. We're going to sit down and talk about the pandemic today because everybody's stressed out in English. And you're going to hear a little bit about me and I'm going to know a little bit more about you. And because monolingualism isn't the goal, I don't feel bad about it. You know, and I used to, I used to be like, I can't believe I didn't use 100% target language today. But then I remembered that yeah. it's fine. Yeah. That, it, that, you know, nothing bad was going to happen because I chose to be a real human with real humans for a day. I love that. I think, I think that is, there's so many things that we talked about today that I think are really going to both resonate with teachers, um, educators, world language people out there. Um, but also challenge a little bit, right? And just, you know, again, just challenge that our our ideas of of why things are the way they are, and they've always been that way. And I think it is hard to break out of that. And and just that idea that, you know, we can start small, bring some different images, ask some mm-hmm. questions, you know, get some opinions, uh, you know, do that thing, you know, treat them like they are, you know, they are human beings, you know, that, that have opinions. Yeah. And, and, you know, they they have words they want to know. They have agendas that, of why they want to learn a, a language, you know, um, exactly. and it may not be the same as ours. Right. And giving them that choice exactly. and that freedom and, and letting it be OK, you know, is a great place to kind of start. And, and a big thing there, honestly, I think one of the in addition to being open, you know, to change and, and also open to mm-hmm. being wrong, I think the all of us as world as language learners, right? We remember what it's like to be wrong and to be excited about being wrong and be like, oh, I learned a new thing. Yeah. Right. And then sometimes we get in our like professional spaces and we're like, somebody somewhere thinks I'm an right. expert. <laughs> so then I guess I, sh- so then I feel weird about being wrong. And we get in this kind of expert fallacy, yeah. right? Of like, I should know things. So then somebody tells me, Matt, why did you say that? I disagree. I, what if you think like, about oh, it like this? And I'm like, no, 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 right. no, I'm an expert. I shouldn't be wrong. But then I'm like, no, you're a language learner. You love being wrong and you know you will grow from that experience. So part of it is, right, is that. But I also think, you know, our students know, like they will, and the beauty of teaching elementary school kids is they will will say, this is boring. Oh yeah, they are brutal. I don't understand what we're doing. (laughs) Yeah, they, they are real honest. And then they kind of, you know, as they get socialized into particular behaviors in school and with adults and stuff, you know, sometimes they feel them they feel things but they don't tell you anymore if you especially if you don't have that relationship with students but cultivating those uh kind of channels for feedback whether it's uh exit ticket on a piece of paper it's a google form with a question that says you know you try something and just ask them did they like it how did they feel about it did they learn something this unit besides french that that was valuable they think is important and cool and whatever and because they'll tell you and if everybody says no don't take that as a, mm-hmm. I failed, I'm horrible, I should quit. Take that as a, what can yeah. I do differently? What is this information telling me to motivate the next round of changes? Because, you know, I think about curricula, there's kind of two states that a language curriculum is in. It's either in progress <laughs> or it's in the trash and right. we're starting over, <laughs> right? There, it's never For done. Sure. It's never finished. It's never perfect. Sure. Like we changed our lessons between first right. and second block. You know, even if it's yeah. the same prep, we change it. And that's fine. That's, that's, this is a, you know, language is to quote one of my favorite scholars is a complex, open, dynamic system. So teaching is too, right? It, it, it is, there is no one size fits all. And if anybody tells yeah. you there is, I would say, don't be friends <laughs> with that person because this is far too complicated to be that no easy. Doubt. So be open, open to the critical yeah. thinking and conversations that we want our students to have. You know, we can yeah, and to start them. someplace, right? And and where and wherever yeah, that is, exactly. what yeah. is it? There's a, yeah, so there's a quote that somebody used in a PD I was in once, and I loved it. It's uh, you don't have to be great oh. to start, but you have to uh, start. To exactly, be great. that's awesome. Like, oh, like I should put that, that on my wall, right? That is true. That is. I exactly. Love it. it is. I on love it. Wall, it's honestly, <laughs> you know, great. Well, I love this conversation. I really appreciate I could. I think we could talk like 
all day, right? I mean, I just, I, I've really enjoyed right. this and I hope people have enjoyed listening to this. Um, Me too. What, what are you on Twitter? I know you're very active. What's your handle on Twitter? We're going to make sure we put that in there. My Twitter is at Matt Laoshi, L-A-O-S-H-I. That's Chinese uh, teacher. It's what my uh, four-year-olds at elementary school used to call me. I Matt love Lausche. it. I love it. And we'll put it in the show notes as well. And I know you would love to engage with people um, online as well. Yes. And I, hopefully we can see each other live and in person in, at AATSP, so in Puerto Rico. Yes, so we will we'll absolutely have to make have, that happen. Have a, have a coffee in person or something. So thank you again absolutely. so much for coming. Um, I have just loved talking with you, Matt. Thank you so much for all of your insights. Yeah, thanks for having me.